0: as you're seated, grab your Bible, open it up, or turn it on to Romans chapter nine. Uh, we'll be in Romans chapter nine, uh, verse one through five, is what we're going to look at today. Uh, some of you guys have asked uh, when looking for our missionaries, uh, I would love to pray for them. How do I know who we support? Uh, which is a great question. If you log on to our website, www.communitygospelchurch.com, um, there is a tab there uh, that talks all about reaching far and how you can. Uh, pray for uh, our missionaries uh, as well. Um, One of the best things I just got from one of our missionaries, I believe Glenn told me this, is he said, uh, one of his prayers, or it was in the bottom of his email, he said, never let your your caffeine levels drop. I appreciated that. I took it as drink as much coffee as I possibly can, Uh, (laughs) right? So, Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 1 through 5. We're starting a new series called Bulletproof. Uh, talk about the sovereignty of God in Romans uh, chapter 9. And this is a really interesting series. I'm glad you're here with us this morning that you could explore this. As I was studying for this sermon, I came across a story that I thought was phenomenal about a man named Eugene Lang. Uh, Eugene Lang, for those of you who don't know, is a self made millionaire. Um, And I don't know about you, but it it would be kind of nice at times to have a couple of million dollars just laying around, right? Wouldn't that be kind of nice to have? But he's a self-made millionaire, and the story goes like this. It's kind of moved its way into a a, a legend, uh, but he changed the lives of 59 sixth grade students one year. Um, In East Harlem, New York, he was asked to come and to speak to a class to inspire students, I mean, all these students wanted to know, how did you become a millionaire? How did you make all of your money? They wanted to know how that happens and how they could do the same. And this is a rundown part of town. So he comes in and he's got a list of things that he would like to discuss and all the bullet points and stuff like that. But as he's going through uh, the preparation for this class, it came uh, to his heart that he should tell the students, which he did, if they stayed in school he would help them pay the college tuition for each one that stayed in school. How come I wasn't a part of that sixth grade class? But what happened is something amazing happened. At that moment, the lives of the students changed because they had hope. They had hope. See, they didn't have any hope, but now everything kind of changed that day. And the story goes that uh, there was a reporter and they looked at one of the students and she asked the student, she said, what happened that day? And he said, I had something to look forward to, something that was waiting for me, and it was a golden feeling. Nearly 90% of that class went on to graduate from high school. Phenomenal. Phenomenal, phenomenal story. Why do I share it with you this morning? Is because Jesus Christ does the same thing for us. He essentially writes our future for us by dying on the cross for our sins. And at the moment we come To confess and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have something to look forward to, something that's waiting for us, and it is truly a golden feeling. In Romans chapter 9, we realize that it is an account of God never failing. It's bulletproof. God pays the tuition for us on the cross. He gives us hope. He gives us something to look forward to, but sometimes his people will reject that message, For lack of better word or or, or the reason why, sometimes the people will reject that message. And what Paul knew is that the Jewish people were rejecting that message. And the Jewish people of the day were very religious people. And he scratched his head on why people would reject such a great message. And so he desperately tries to change the belief that God had abandoned these Jews and that he was for them. Sometimes we look at it the same way or we have people in our lives who believe the same thing. They think that God has abandoned them, that he has run away from them, and they don't know what to do with this thing called the Bible, and they don't know what to do with this thing called faith. So Paul's aim is to show all people, not just the Jews because it extends past the Jews into the Gentiles, which would be us seated in the pews here this morning, that Christ is for all who believe to the Jew first and then the Gentile. This Christ gives us hope. He gives us a future. And like Paul, a a biblical Christian is called to compassion or to speak these things into the people's lives around them. See, first of all, we accept it for ourselves, and then we communicate it to others. It is the basis of our compassion as Christians. Let me see if I can unpack this for you this morning. Romans chapter 9, if you would, look at that. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. The first thing he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. You can believe this. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness uh, in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It's good to know that Paul struggled too. Verse 3, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Four, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He is pleading for his heritage here. Five, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That is a packed verse. And when I first read it, I had no idea what it said. But after studying it, I think there might be some little light there, and hopefully we'll do diligence with God's Word today. The first thing that Paul has that we need to understand when God gives us a hope for the future is that he has, first of all, a heart for the hurting, which is something that we also need to have. There in that first verse, write that down, is that we as compassionate Christians who have a hope in Jesus Christ, the first thing that is necessary for us in order to communicate this to others as well as ourselves is that we have to have a heart for the hurting. So oftentimes we just kind of go in our life and we just kind of do our own things. And if we were to be honest about it, many of those things are for ourselves and we do not seek our neighbor or our brother's Best And Paul says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. He desperately wants to see the Jews, God's people, trust Christ. This is his heritage. So much so that it produces great anxiety within him. He has a heart for the hurting. He has a heart for the lost. Now, if we were to take that word anxiety... And if we were to study it, we would understand that there's a parallel with that word in the Bible. And this is where Jesus is with his disciples. And he has the same anxiety or sadness when he finds the disciples asleep before his arrest. The interesting thing, the interesting parallel in this passage is that this is for the church folk. This is for the religious. See, the Jews were very legalistic in their approach to God. They understood they had to do certain things in order to get to God, and Paul's heart hurt for them. If we were to unpack this, we would say that even us as pastors, we hurt for the church people because sometimes they just don't get it, and sometimes we just don't get it, and we're so focused inward that we forget outward how much people are hurting and how much people really, truly need this hope of Jesus Christ, Paul knew that his heritage or his legacy hung in the balance of understanding the gospel. There's so many times when I get up on Sunday morning, I feel like a broken record. If you confess and believe in your heart, if you confess and believe in your heart, if you confess and believe in your heart, I'm like, God, when do I get to stop saying that? When do we get to stop talking about if we would just confess and believe that you are the Lord and the Messiah? When do we just get done with that? And he's like, never. Until I come and I call you home, this is the message in which you have received and you have believed that you must take to the ends of the earth. That's what he says. Walt Disney, one of our modern day prophets, (laughs) he has a great quote that I thought was fascinating. He says, our heritage and our ideals, our codes and our standards, the things we live by and teach our children are preserved or diminished by how freely we exchange our ideas or feelings. The reason why that speaks so strongly to my soul is that for some odd reason, the Christian has concealed what we know to be true in the word of God, and we've let the world's voice become greater than that which is in the word. So we must express an exchange to a lost and hurting people, including ourselves, the religiously wounded, the religiously upset, the religiously legalistically seeking our way to Jesus, what God's word says to us, and we must take that and develop that, which leads to a heart for the hurting, which will in turn lead to an exchange of God's ideas for the future. Do you know what the word says? Says, well, yeah, I know what the word says. Do you do what the word says? This is huge for us as Christians. Why? Because Paul's desire is for Jews to trust Christ and use that in their everyday, day to day activities. Paul essentially says that his feeling is so strong that he wished, now follow me here because this is hard to understand. Paul wishes that he were cut off from Christ for the Jews. What does that mean? That means that Paul essentially says he was willing to stay out of heaven so that a group of people could come to heaven and he would go to hell for the lost. As a Christian, I have never ever, ever wanted to give away my salvation. It's mine. (laughs) But Paul here is essentially saying, I wish that I were cut off from Christ so that you would really, truly understand the ramifications of the gospel and how much it helps the hurting, gives hope to hurting people, as well as hope to yourself. I wish you would use this gospel is what he's saying. Now, some of us understand that if we've ever lost a child. have never lost a child, I hope and pray that we never do lose a child. But if you've ever sat and talked to somebody who has lost a child, they would say, we wish we could have exchanged places with that child. We wish we could have switched roles. There is no doubt in your mind that the, child, that the parent would want to trade places, would want to go through that for their children so that they didn't have to. It's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Hey, I want to go through this so you don't have to go through this. I want to communicate this to you so you don't have to go through this. That you would understand that the gospel has an impact against false teaching, against that which is against God, and it would cause much sorrow and anguish in our heart if we could get to the same feeling. This is where, this is where Paul lands. This is where Paul sits. He wants people to have a heart for the hurting. And these are the beginnings, if we were to study the scripture in Matthew 24, of the birth pains that will lead to the return of Jesus Christ. So the culmination of this is, and church, just let me ask you honestly, are we really truly broken people for those who are religiously lost as well as secularly lost? Like, are we really broken for them? Sometimes, to be completely transparent, I'm more focused on myself than I am for somebody else. Like, it's just my ideals, my ways, my things, instead of somebody else. Like, God, would you just tend to my needs? Would you just take care of my agenda for the day instead of somebody else? We commented a little bit on this last week, but we unpacked a little bit. What does it mean to take care of our neighbor to take care of our neighbor is to meet the needs of the person who are in our path, whose ever need we can meet. Who is in our path? That is our call as a Christian to help. And so, a uh, heart for the hurting is us as Christians to go to those who are hurting and communicate what Scripture communicates. How do I know what Scripture communicates? I spend time in. The word. The more time I spend in the word, the more concerned I am for the loss. That's what Paul says. And this leads us to a communication of hope for the future. So I'm going to start this a little bit for you. I'm going to get this kind of rolling for you. When we communicate a hope for the future, this is exactly what Paul says in the rest of the passage. He gives a couple of examples. He gives six, actually. Six adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, worship and promises. Six truths he gives to us. There's six spiritual privileges that God specifically gave the Jews. Now I'm going to teach you this morning, okay? This is this is solely teaching. We're looking at these things as parallels, and we're understanding that as we have compassion for the hurting, this is what we are to communicate. Because as Paul communicates to the Jews using the Old Testament, we are called to communicate to those because we are compassionate towards them what the New Testament says to us, okay? So we're going to have a little bit of old law, and we're going to have a little bit of new law. Let's see if I can do this, all right? These Old Testament truths lead to six truths for a few future hope, as we trust in Christ, you can use these to people who are hurting. You can use these this week to people who are hurting, okay? Break out your community gospel church notes, put them on the table. You know, the guy's like, what are you doing? You're like, hold on, my pastor said I could use this, so here we go, all right? This is exactly what we're using with people who are hurting. First thing, he says that these people were adopted. What does that mean? Well, the Jews were Israel's, they were, God says, Israel is my firstborn in Exodus chapter four. So Paul wanted them to see that they were adopted, that God loved them and that God cared about them. Okay. If I have a heart for the hurting, the first truth that I communicate is that you are adopted, that God loves you. To the Jew, it is that God picked you first. Like, you were picked first to, to be in dodgeball. You have been picked last in something? It's horrible feeling. You have been first? Great feeling, okay? So this is exactly what he's saying to you. He says, you are adopted. How do we know that we're adopted and not just the Jews are adopted? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, God adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus solely on grace. Okay, are you hurting? Do you have somebody else who's hurting? Is there something going on in your life? Then understand you are adopted, that God calls you into his family. He's picking you to be on his team. I don't know about you, but that encourages me a little bit, that God would pick me. Wow, amazing, because I got like nothing going on for me. In the spectrum of God being all perfect, he looks at me and he says, you, I want you on my team because you've trusted in me in faith. Now, should we be upset that the Jews got picked first? No, not really. Should we be discouraged that the Jews got picked first? I mean, when we get to heaven, do we get to like have like a dodgeball fight against Jews versus Gentiles? I hope not. All right, but what happens is we shouldn't be upset about this. It's as if I'm leaning more towards my firstborn than my secondborn. Corrine came into the picture first and we loved her. She, we thought she was great. And then Gianna came in later and now we can't picture life without both of them. This is exactly what God is saying. You're adopted. You're in my family. Okay? Old Testament, I love these people. New Testament, man, I love these people. You are my family. This should encourage you, okay? This should encourage you who are hurting. It should encourage people in your life who are hurting, okay? Second thing he says. He says, divine glory. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 16, the glory of the Lord appeared to the Jews, So we saw that God's glory appeared to the Jews, like they could literally, physically see God's glory. It was manifested to them. They saw it with their own two eyes. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus, coming 2,014 years ago, is the radiance of God's glories, and he provides the purification for our sins. So we see God's glory all throughout Scripture in the life of Christ, If we were to sit down and study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts, we would see that God has shown his glory not only to the Jews, but to us as well. There's a great quote that says, Every true work is not done to the poor. Every true work is not done essentially just to the poor. He understands that we are all poor and in need of God's glory. So you experience it. You experience God's glory every day. If you have somebody who's hurting, if you have somebody who's, who's struggling, if you're, if, if you're the one who's struggling, you've experienced God's glory and his grace. You wake up in the morning, the sun's shining, it's God's glory. We see it all around us in creation. We see it all around us in the smallest little details of our life. If, if we were to look. Okay, third thing. So we're building you up, we're building up people, we're, we're having a hope for the future because we're adopted, because we've seen God's glory. Also, we know that God has given us a covenant. Now, there's a couple covenants in the Old Testament text, all right? The Jews understood covenants a little bit better than we understand covenants because they understood that God got involved in covenants. The first covenant that we see happened at the big boat. Anybody? His name is? Noah, okay, God gets into a covenant with Noah. He says, I will save you, and I'm going to wipe out the rest of the earth. All right? And he saves, some, he saves Noah, some of his family. First covenant. Second covenant we see is with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I will make your name great. He looks at Abraham, and they're both old, and they have children. And hopefully that doesn't scare our older congregation away. All right? But he says, I'm going to make you as numerous as the stars. He says, look up. Look at the stars. See them all? That's, that's, that's your offspring. Okay, there's a covenant there. Third thing we see is with Moses in Exodus 19. I'm going to take my people out of slavery. I'm going to use you, Moses. And we see it with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We also see it in a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, which parallels with where we're at in the New Testament. That God is in a covenant with his people. He's in a relationship. He's in a marriage relationship with his people. We talked about a little bit last week, but Jesus sits down and he has communion with his disciples. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Drink and eat. And when they do that, they come into a relationship or a covenant with him. Ephesians chapter two. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who confessed and believed were once far off, you were as far off as you could possibly imagine. It's like, remember before you met your wife? You were completely useless. <laughs> Track that. All right. You were, you were far off. You, you had no shot. <laughs> okay? And your wife came and she saved you from a world of problems. But Jesus came in and we have been brought near to him in the blood of Christ. He's in a covenant relationship with you now the crazy thing about a covenant relationship with jesus christ is we think when we do disservice to that relationship he leaves not true he stays with us it blows my mind that god would stay with us regardless of all the junk i do to him i can't imagine why he would stay but he does says, I want to be in a covenant relationship with you. You're adopted. I have a hope for the future. Somebody's going to pay my tuition. I see God's glory revealed to me in scripture. I see God's glory revealed to me in nature and through his people. I'm in a covenant relationship with him. And because of that, I receive his law. This is huge for us. If you want to do something in your notes, I would star this one. That you have received God's law. In the Old Testament, they received it in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Praise the Lord, I did not live in the Old Testament because I would have fallen flat on my face when they started reading out the law. Amen? Man, what a, what a mind-bender that would be. Can you imagine being sitting in the congregation? Here comes the law. It's read to the people. They start listening to it you look over at your buddy, you're like, we've been going for like an hour here. He can stop any time. But they were expected to carry out to the letter that law. It showed them just how much they fell short of God's grace. But the crazy thing is, God comes and he sends his son, in Galatians chapter 4 we read, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption. It kind of comes around full circle. And so we receive God's law as Christians, and we understand that there's things that maybe we could participate in doing, but we don't participate in doing because it helps make us like Christ. See, uh, John Locke said, the end of the law is not to abolish or to restrain. I think some of us approach this Bible and we think, Jordan, I would be a Christian, but this word is restrictive. It is restraining. And, and I don't fully understand it. And there are some things that I read in there which I kind of know I should be doing, but I don't Do. But the end of the law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. Have you ever looked at God's laws as preserving and enlarging your freedom in Jesus Christ? For in all the states of created, being capable of the law, where there is no law, there is no freedom. In other words, God loves you so much that he would set up barriers he would set up laws to protect you he would set up laws to help you and oftentimes when we are living outside of those laws are the times in which we have no hope and we look at it and we go man why do I feel so far off it's probably because I'm outside of God's laws am I outside of a relationship with him no we never said that but I'm outside God's laws. It's almost as if a husband would look at it and say, hey, uh, I feel like my marriage is kind of struggling. Why do you think that is? Because I'm running around with another girl. That might be your first hint. Might be a problem. And it says in the Bible, we must return to our first love. Return to our first love. It's Jesus Christ. He says, return to it. Receive God's laws. Law is good. Despite popular opinion, law is good. Law helps us. It helps us move. It helps us to grow. We're adopted. We understand that. We see God's glory. We're in covenant with him. We've received his law, and we want to follow it. We want to do what God's law says, which leads us to worship, which leads us as a people who are without hope to worship because now we do have hope. Now in the Old Testament, they they worshiped in the temple. They had a sacred service, uh, which may have also included service in the tabernacle. So they weren't really as far off as we were, okay? They had a building in which they went to, and they had uh, volunteer opportunities in which they could serve. And we understood that there were people who served in the Old Testament, much like they serve today in the church. And they worshiped God because of that. They wanted him to see that they were all in. Not just 40 or 50%, but they were all in. They wanted their whole lives to reflect the living God. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that we are living stones built into a spiritual house. We offer sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. I just talked to my dad a little bit ago, and I said, Dad, how's the church going? He said, great. I just spent two weeks in Canada. No clue what's going on. I said, what's going on there? What, What do you think? I said, what would be the one message that you would present to the people who you preach to every week? He said, to conform to the image of Christ so that you can truly worship the king. And conforming to the image of Christ takes all of us, not just some of us. But we're living stones. William Temple said, worship is a selfless emotion of which our nature is capable And therefore, the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all our actual sin. To remove our self-centeredness and to focus it on the one who adopted us. To focus on the one who shows us his glory. To focus on the one who gives us a covenant with him who sets forth his laws so that we can walk in them, so that we can freely worship him, so that we can raise our voices, we can lift our hands. He says this is what it looks like to have hope because Jesus is a fulfillment of a promise to the Jews which goes into the Gentiles. The last thing he says is that this is a promise. I don't know about you. If you're at somebody break a promise, it makes me mad. You know what I'm saying? Somebody breaks a promise. I make Corrine now pinky swear to me. Anybody ever pinky swear to you? If you've never pinky sworn before, have your neighbor give you a little pinky swear. It's so much fun. But we do something a little bit different. Some of you guys are on it, you know. We do something different. I said, Corrine, are you going to eat your lunch today? Yeah, Dad, I'm going to eat my lunch today. You promise you're going to eat your lunch today? Yeah, I promise. You pinky swear, she starts thinking it over. I don't know. What are we having for lunch today, right? I, pround, I, say, I say, come on, let's do this thing. So she puts her little pinky out and she locks it with mine. And I make her kiss the thumb. Anybody ever done that? You guys into that one? All right. And that's a whole new level. Okay, so I put it in there and I, we seal it with the kiss. So I kiss, uh, kiss my thumb and, and I says, you promise me. And every once in a while she breaks it. Imagine that kid's breaking the law. But she breaks it. And I'm a little disappointed. And so I look at her and I say, great. You broke my promise. She said, oh, dad, let it go. <laughs> I said, you broke my promise. I said, you promised. I said, your word is as good as your bond. She has no idea what that means. And I said, and it's a great teaching time because I said, Green, do you know that God never breaks his promise? Sometimes we break promises. It makes us upset, but God never breaks his promise. We were promised 300 times in the Old Testament that a Messiah would come, 300 times. This is what he'll look like. This is what he'll talk like. This is what he'll do. Three hundred times in the Old Testament, we're given a a promise about a prophecy about this Messiah who would come, and in the New Testament, it shows up, and it's for both Jews and Gentiles, for all who would believe. It's for our heritage. It's for those who are our children and those who we work with. It's for our friends and our family members. It's what we hurt for. We want people, we have great anxiety for people to understand this hope that we have received because Jesus coming restores his chosen people to a renewed world. That's what Revelation's all about. I'm coming again soon. I'm gonna restore you, thank the Lord. I'm gonna raise you up. And Paul gives us all this information, all these promises, so what? What? Okay, I got them all. I understand it. They're all in my head. I can list them out. I got them sitting on a piece of paper, and I can break them out. If I'm hurting or somebody else is hurting, I got six truths to help me kind of boost my self-esteem a little bit, to boost my maturity in Jesus Christ a little bit. We all feel intellectually stimulated, but how does this really go to the pavement? Well, let me give you something that really helps me. There was a guy, it's Little League season. How many of you guys have Little Leaguers around? Man, some of, you, some of you know a Little Leaguer, so you can follow me. A man at a Little League baseball game, he comes up in the middle of the game. or Actually, it was just right at the start of the game. He asked the boy in the dugout what the score was. He says, hey, bub, what's the score? The little kid looks at him. He says, 18 to nothing. We're behind. 18 to nothing? I've seen some Little League. That's not like a high score by any means. I've seen some Little League scores, okay? He says, 18 to nothing. The, the guy looks at him and says, man, I bet you you're Really, really discouraged. I bet you, you're just bumming out. This little kid starts shaking his head. He says, why would I be discouraged? We haven't gotten up to bat yet. (laughs) I'm hiring that kid. (laughs) Church, let me ask you a question. Are you hurting? You know somebody's hurting? Are you hurting for them? We're up to bat. Like that's where we're at in the church. This is our hope for the future in our relationship with Jesus Christ. All these six truths are, are true. They, they really do exist. We're at bat and God is looking for us, his people, to develop a heart for the hurting and the ability to communicate a hope for the future, not only to others, but to ourselves. Paul understood that if a Jew could get to the place where he understood these things and preach these truths to himself, he could do monumental things for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so oftentimes, we look at it, we say, I don't understand why God would pick me, but he did. And he says, I want you to pick up a bat, and I want you to swing for the fences, because I know you can do it. He said, God, but I don't understand, like, I have so much junk. I mean, I'm so far off, like, there's some better people down the road. He says, no, 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 I picked you, I adopted you, I showed you my glory, I came into a covenant with you. I wanted you to receive the law. I wanted you to follow the law. I wanted you to worship me. I wanted you to understand these promises. That's what he says. I mean, he's, this is like what Paul is screaming out for us. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And that means that God is faithful no matter what men may do to his word. A number of years ago, researchers performed an experiment to see the effect on undergoing hardship. There's two things I know about people who research. One, they hate rats. (laughs) And two, they love to study. God has not called me to that field, praise the Lord. But we look at it, and when you study this, which is fascinating, there was two sets of laboratory rats that were placed in separate tubs of water. You got one tub of water over here and one tub of water over here. And the researchers left one set in the water and found within an hour, they had all drowned. Now, that's cruel and unusual punishment, and you can contact them if you so feel fit, but don't come after me, okay? I'm not the researcher here. But they dump these rats in a bucket of water, and boom, dead an hour. Rats can't swim. The researchers left another set in the, in the water, but periodically they would pop in, and they would lift out of the water these rats, and then they would return them. And when that happened, the second set of rats swam for over twenty-four hours. That to me is more cruel and unusual than dumping the rats and then letting them drag for an hour. You know. But why would they do that? Like, what? what what's the conclusion here? What's the What's the ramifications of this scientific experiment? <laughs> well, what they concluded was those rats didn't drown because they were given a rest, but because. They had been given hope. And sometimes, church, I wish God would just let me drown. Amen? Like, just pull me out of the world. I get so tired of the struggle with sin. I get so tired of it. And he say, God, just let me drown. Take me out. Completely hopeless. You ever been there? And he says, I I can't do that because if you would understand who you are and how you are created and the trial and the situation and the circumstance is for your benefit. And if you would understand that I do these things to give you a hope because in the end, it is all worth it. It's all worth it. Those animals somehow hoped that if they could stay afloat just a little bit longer, someone would reach down and rescue them. And that is the Christian life. Somebody has reached down and rescued you. And what my realization is, when I study this passage of Scripture, when I don't lean on the six truths that God gives me, when I don't lean on his word, I am letting myself have control of my life and it feels like I'm drowning. But the more I spend time in the word, the more I spend time in prayer, the more I spend time talking to my Lord and Savior who has adopted me, the more I realize that there is a hope for the future and his hands are underneath my life and he is holding me up until he calls me home. It will not last forever. This is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It holds power for God's people, and it should change your life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's a totally different perspective on who you are when we study this passage. First to the Jew, and then for us, the Gentiles. And God, we understand that you picked them first, and then suddenly you showed compassion on your people by coming to us and dying on the cross for our sins and then giving us the ability to know you personally. It doesn't matter where we were picked in the line. It's the fact that we were picked, that you adopted us as sons and daughters. My prayer for the congregation this morning, as well as myself, is that we would understand that we were adopted. We're sons and daughters of the living King. My prayer for us as a church is that we would see your glory with our eyes. We would hear about your glory with our ears. That we would live that out underneath the covenant that we have with you. We wouldn't take that for granted. We wouldn't take the relationship that we have with you for granted. But we would, man, we would just run to that. God, we've done things that we've gone off the rails and you call us to come back on constantly. We've treated you like an abusive spouse, but for some reason you stay with us regardless of our shortcomings. And so God, even though it seems so petty and even though it seems as if we have nothing to offer, would you please let our worship be so loud for you that the community around us hears it? Would you let us live our lives in a way where the people who are around us would see it? God, I fall so flat on my face with this every single day. And yet for some reason, you still say that I can come to you and I can lift my hands and I can lift my voice. And God, I just don't feel like... I don't feel like you deserve that. But you want it. You crave it. So God, with our congregation, would you receive our praise? And would you help us cling to the promises in your word? When we read it, when we study it, when we dive into it, would you help those promises sink into our bones and flow through our blood? Lord Jesus, would you help us to know that you are cradling us with your loving arms, pulling us slowly out of the water of sin and restoring us in a relationship with your son, Jesus. What a great God you are. Thank you so much for such a great gift. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church Podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.